0: Turning back this morning in the Word of God to the book of Nahum, the chapter 1, the book of Nahum, the first chapter, taking the topic this morning, when a nation forgets God, when a nation forgets God. No doubt then tonight we'll be thinking on a Christmas-style theme. And of course, next Lord's Day, that'll be the topic, I'm sure, again. But we're looking at the book of Nahum, the chapter 1. And what we're going to do is read now verse 7 and verse 15, which are the two positives, the bright lights in the darkness of this chapter. Verse 7 and 15. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feasts, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. With the Word of God open before us, we'll bow together again in a further word of prayer. Gracious Father, again we come before Thy throne. There is no other that we can go to. There is none other that can help us who has promised to be with us right to the end. Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them, we are told in Scripture, unto the end. We thank thee that he which hath begun a good work in us will also perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Many a workman has begun a project and has had to abandon it. Maybe the plans were wrong, maybe the finances ran out. Maybe he too himself was taken away in death from that pet project, and it stayed unfinished. But here is a project, the building of his church, the calling of a people onto the glory of his name that will never be abandoned, that will never stop halfway through, that will never see its builder faint through exhaustion, fail for any reason. But we thank thee that our Lord has said that He will build His church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We know that that's going to happen. And despite all of the wickedness and the folly of men, and we see much of that in every side today. We have seen it in all generations. We've read about it this morning in the book of Nahum. Despite all the darkness, despite all the devices in a man's heart, despite all of those deviations from thy truth, and all of that which is designed to destroy Christ and all that He is determined to do, None of these projects will achieve their end, but Thou art going to reign gloriously, and we thank Thee for that. Come and speak peace to our hearts today. May we know Thy help in the delivery now of Thy Word. We ask it in our Savior's name and for His glory alone. Amen. Two of the men who fit into the minor prophet designation, not because they weren't important or were of lesser importance than those styled the major prophets, but simply because their books were smaller in their extent. Two of the minor prophets in the Old Testament had a close connection with the city of Nineveh, the capital city of the nation of Assyria. One of the prophets was Jonah, and we're all very familiar with the stirring story that describes how he was sent to the city of Nineveh, as God's man, his messenger, to deliver a message of warning, and under his ministry, and even to the consternation of Jonah himself, because he went there with an extreme bias. We find the people of Nineveh, they turn to the Lord in a widespread, amazing display of true repentance. The other prophet with a Nineveh connection is, of course, Nahum, that we've turned to today. And in the course of his brief word and prophecy, we come again across a message from God for the same city, the city of Nineveh. But quite frankly, Nahum stands up and he says, Nineveh, you're finished. It's over. The time of your dominance of the nations has now come to its close, and God is announcing this through me. So, in one prophecy, that of Jonah, we see God's compassion towards Nineveh, but in the next, we see God's wrath. Tell me, does that mean that we are serving an arbitrary God? One who swings this way, swings that way, changes it with the wind in his attitude and his actions towards us. When we get up in the morning, we're not really quite sure what kind of a god we are going to encounter if he can show grace, and love, and mercy in one book towards one nation and prominent city Nineveh, and then change in the next book that deals with that nation. Is God fickle? It's important to realize that our God is not fickle. The book of Jonah is written sometime around 750 B.C. Nahum comes in about a century or more later, sometime between 663 B.C. and before 612 B.C. There is no doubt that Nahum's prophecy comes with this pulverizing judgment upon the city of Nineveh. It's quite poetic, even if it is violent. Nahum does a masterful job here of piling image upon image. It's kind of a PowerPoint presentation that he's assembling here and building, and one slide is following another slide and following another, and the picture keeps on developing. We're reaching a crescendo here, and at the time that Nahum spoke, many must have thought he was mad. Nineveh? Nineveh? Going to fall? Nahum, you must be joking. Where did you pick up that script Nineveh, look at it. It It's at the peak of its power. Don't you know that those warriors of Assyrian, they have conquered Thebes, a prominent city in Egypt. They're unstoppable. Nobody can stand before them. Nineveh going to fall? Surely, Nahum, you've got this all wrong. And all appearances did suggest, in fairness, that Nineveh was a fortress no one could possibly penetrant. Archaeological studies since have revealed the city was located next to the Tigris River. It was a walled city. It covered almost 1,800 acres. The wall was about eight miles in circumference. It was so thick, the walls of the city of Nineveh, that they were able to stage chariot races along those walls. The city surrounded by a moat coming off the river Tigris. Nineveh, it's the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and in seven 21 B.C., those Assyrians had come down, conquered, and then deported the people out of the northern tribes of the nation of Israel. Now, due to the harshness of the words that we find popping up in this prophecy, it's been a troubling read for so many people over the years. However, for the very reason that it a difficult piece of Scripture to digest, to come to grips with. At the very beginning of the prophecy, Nahum here affirms some important truths about God that we need always to keep in mind, and they place the contents of the entire book, this book of judgment, in its proper context. So, first of all, we're going to consider the character of God, and right at the beginning of Nahum, Nahum 1 verse 2 and verse 3, God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. Verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He's laying it on the line, who God is, and He brings to our attention at least three basic characteristics about God here. First of all, His compassion. We are told God cares about His people. Where do we get that? Opening line in verse 2, God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. But that's all terribly negative, and it is negative imagery. There's no doubt about that. It sounds like God here is overprotective. He is possessive. He is hot-tempered. He is jealous, and He revenges. But that's not the image that we need to draw here. Jealousy is positive when it means that we are cherishing what we have, and we want to protect what we have. God is jealous over His glory, jealous over His name, jealous over His honor, jealous over His people. Think about it this way. If somebody were to come along, and they were going to attack A member of your family. What are you going to do? Will you sit back, let it happen, or will you stand up, run, and defend that family member? Of course you'll defend them. You would fight tenaciously for that family member with all the energy that you had. Why do we act that way? It's because we are jealous for their care. It's because we are single-minded, we're enthusiastic in our devotion to them. We don't want harm or hurt to come their way. And when Nahum here talks about God being jealous and avenging, what he's underlining is this. God cares passionately about His people, and He will fully defend them. As the hymn writer put it, no, never alone no, never alone. He's promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. So, we have his compassion. We also have his censure. We're told the Lord will judge those who oppose him In verse 2 again, God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on His adversaries, and He reserveth wrath for His enemies. Now, that's flowing out of the first idea about God, that God is passionate about defending His people and defending all that is good and all that is true and all that is honest. And you know, when people come to the Bible, any passage, this one would be just one example if ever they got to Nahum 1 verse 2. And whenever they read about God's vengeance, it kind of leaves a sour taste in their mouth, because they believe that God's love, let's only talk about His love, it makes His vengeance impossible. D. L. Moody gave a wonderful illustration on this one. And he used to ask, what if God were the governor of the state, and he decided to be merciful and release all the criminals to run amok in society. Is that merciful, or is that cruelty to the decent people in that state? That governor, if he did it, Moody said, would most likely be booted out of office. Just as we do not allow wicked people to run loose in society, so God will not allow the sinful and rebellious to disturb the peace and joy of heaven. Now, you and I know that in our own country, in Northern Ireland, because of that Good Friday agreement, in 1998, that this was the very thing that happened. 400-plus prisoners were given early release, did not serve time that was justified for their heinous crimes. And you'll meet with the victims of their crimes again and again, who still 20 years, 25 years later, cannot get their heads around the injustice that was foisted on our country back then. God's censure. And then if you look again, there's another aspect of His character that's revealed His control. God never acts in a hasty manner. Verse 3 of Nahum 1, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, what a couplet there is there, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath His way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of His feet. Usually, when you and I talk about somebody and we say, now, they're filled with wrath. They're out for vengeance. We're thinking of someone who's acting impulsively. They're prone to Explode, lash out, often out of control, but notice how this is not the case with God. He is. Nahum tells us right at the start of verse 3, He is slow to anger. He's giving men and women time, space to repent. There's this glorious demonstration in the book of Jonah that's already been referenced today. God desires to extend mercy, but we must never equate God's patience with any sense of weakness. He's patient because He can't do anything else. No, that's not the case the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And if you read the book of Jonah and the book of Nahum back to back, you'll catch sight of both elements of God's nature on full view there. In the book of Jonah, you'll find his patience and his love on full display. But here, when we come to Nahum, his patience, it has run out. The time for mercy is over. Judgment has come. Patience is now exhausted. And what a lesson that is for all of us. God's patience, the hymn writer said, will weary someday and leave your sad soul in the blast. By willful resistance, you've wandered away over the deadline. At last, oh, turn. While the Saviour in mercy is waiting, and steer for the harbour bright for how do you know? Your soul may be drifting over the deadline tonight. The character of God. And then secondly the certainty of judgment. The certainty of judgment this prophecy from Nahum about Nineveh is very specific. In fact, It is so detailed, the layers of God's design here, so astonishingly specific. A lot of people have come along, they've looked at the book of Nahum, and they've said, you know what? That book was written after the judgment fell on Nineveh. They could not have predicted all of these things in such incredible detail. It had to be written as history after the events rather than prophecy saying what events would happen. But it is prophecy. It wasn't written before the judgment fell. And in the first couple of chapters in particular, there are so many specific details here. We'll think of the characteristics of the judgment, or at least some of them. In chapter one and the verse eight, you'll find detail given that Nineveh is going to be taken out by an overwhelming flood. That's emphasizing how the city and the whole empire suddenly and completely it is going to be destroyed. Most of us will be able to remember what happened to the World Trade Center towers. One minute, the towers are filled with activity, the balls of business and commerce and life, and in such a short space of time, those once-imposing skyscrapers were erased from the skyline. Who can forget the images of people running? near that trade center as the cloud of dust and rubble was overtaking those as they were running from it as quickly as he could in sheer terror. And that's the image Nahum gives us here. The city that thought itself to be invincible is going to be destroyed quickly and completely. And it's interesting how accurate these words turned out to be, with an overwhelming flood, according to even secular accounts. During the final siege of Nineveh, they were being besieged by an army of Persians, and Medes, and Arabians, and Babylonians, unusually heavy rains caused the rivers to flood, to undermine the city's walls. They collapsed over a length of twenty-one furlongs, and the invading army, because of the breach in the defenses, was able to sweep right in and take the city with an overwhelming flood. Look at chapter 1, verse 10. We're told the city would be devoured, a stubble fully dry, so burned up like dry straw. Archaeologists working their way through the ruins have concluded the city was burned to the ground just as Assyrian had done to so many other cities that they had attacked. The same destruction came on their own heads. devoured, a stubble fully dry. In chapter 2, the verse 8 through 10, another piece of detail about judgment, there was going to be extensive looting. But Nineveh is of old like a pool of water, yet they shall flee away. Stand, stand, shall they cry, but none shall look back. Take ye the spoil of silver, take the spoil of gold, for there is none end of the store and glory out of all the pleasant furniture, she is empty and void, and waste, and the heart melt and the knees smite together, and much pain is in all the loins, and the faces of them all gather blackness. And so it seems here there is no end to the many treasures that Nineveh had. It has vast, it has uncounted wealth. Why did it have it? Because they had attacked many other major cities across the earth, And they had stolen the treasures out of every town they had captured. And yet, here's the stunning thing. In all of the archaeological digging on the site of Nineveh, nothing of all the gold and all the silver of that great city has been discovered. They were stripped bare by these invading armies exactly as Nahum predicted. And then look in chapter 1, in verse 14. The destruction, Nahum says, it's going to be so thorough, Assyria will have no descendants. They'd never be able to attack Israel or anybody else again. Now, those must have sounded like utterly prop posturous words at the time that Nahum stood up and announced them. And yet, after the destruction of Nineveh in 612 BC, this people was lost from history. In fact, the city of Nineveh was lost entirely until archaeologists found it again and began to excavate it. But that was only in the 1840s. I have 19, it's 1840s. The point is, that these were not merely poetic words that Nahum was speaking here. This was a glimpse into the future. We're not dealing here with figurative material. This is literal judgment, and their judgment is going to be so certain, God, way in advance of it happening, is describing it in incredible detail. This God knows everything that has ever taken place. And he knows everything that is going to happen. Sometimes we feel it's all random. It's haphazard. There's no system. There's no order. But God is working by his providence through all the details of your life and mine the characteristics of this judgment, the cause of this judgment as well. Why was God so angry at Nineveh? What took place in those 100, 150 years since Jonah had seen the city repent? Well, you'll find the answer to that question in the first 10 verses of chapter 3 of the book of Nahum. Chapter 3, the verse 1 to 10, you'll find that they were atrocious in their actions. Verse 1 through 3, Woe, God says, to the bloody city it is all full of lies and robbery. The prey departeth not. The noise of a whip and the noise of the rattling of the wheels and of the prancing horses and of the jumping chariots. The horseman lifteth up both the bright sword and the glittering spear, and there is a multitude of slain, and a great number of carcasses, and there is none end of their corpses. They stumble upon their corpses. Here's why. God judged it. Because... They were atrocious interactions. The Ninevites, it was called the city of blood here because of the vicious way in which they went about their conquests. They were cruel. They were inhumane. They would make promises of safe passage for people out of a city, and they would destroy that city, and they would annihilate all of the people they took captive. The historical records are full of accounts of these Assyrians massacring people even slaughtering children in the streets. When they would take captives, they would often tie the captives together. They'd fasten them by hooks through their lips, through other body parts. They were nothing short of barbarians. Draws parallels with the Nazi massacre of the Jews, the disregard shown for human life by terrorists such as the IRA in our country, such as radical Islamists around the world, the genocide perpetrated on nations by ruthless dictators, what Hamas did to the Jews on the 7th of October of this year, 2023. All of these, they are walking in the footsteps of Nineveh. But God is taking note. When compassion leaves a nation, judgment will soon follow. Surely the moral state of our nation is one evidence of God's judgment. They were atrocious in their actions. But also, why were they judged? They were apostate in their adoration idolatrous in their worship. Look at verse 4 of Nahum chapter 3. You'll see how morally corrupt the people are because of the multitude of the whoredoms of the well favoured harlot, the mistress of witchcrafts that selleth nations through her whoredoms and families through her witchcrafts. They buy down to what? Felt good. They loved to party. They loved to indulge. The bowed to the goddess Ishtarm, the goddess of immoral passion and fertility and war. Hedonism was their chosen lifestyle. And as with those harlots of old, Nahum declared, you are going to be publicly exposed. They also were into all kinds of sorcery. Sorcery tapping into the powers of evil spirits, looking for spiritual guidance, so-called, by means of their charms and their trinkets and claiming we can communicate with the dead. You want to correspond with somebody that has already gone into that netherworld? We can bring them up and do it for you. We can bring a message. That kind of thing is happening all around us today. Some of the most spiritually dangerous and highly misleading television shows are still on air. James Vaughan Prague's program, beyond John Edwards' show, crossing over in the Sci-Fi Network, and here, men allegedly are contacting deceased relatives and friends of guests on the program, and they're receiving messages, we're told, allegedly from the deceased persons, and then they're interviewed to, what's your reaction to this wonderful experience, maybe unsettling experience? We could say much about that. What we will say, it's forbidden by God in Holy Scripture. In Leviticus nineteen thirty-one, in Deuteronomy eighteen and ten, in Isaiah eight and nineteen, Second Corinthians eleven thirteen and fourteen, we can check out Ecclesiastes chapter nine verse five and six, in Deuteronomy 18.21-22, in Luke sixteen twenty-five, twenty-six, and Second Thessalonians two nine to twelve. Need we cite any more scripture where God is saying you should not be trying this? devilish, destructive. And there's an increasing fascination in society with the occult and a sharp rise in witchcraft and Satanism, and many people are consulting their crystals and other objects. God is slew to anger, but he will not tolerate this pandering with evil forever. The Ninevites as well, they were arrogant in their attitude. Look at chapter three, the verse eight through ten. Art thou better than populous No? No, or No Ammon? Is a Hebrew word for that Egyptian city Thebes. Art thou better than populous No, or Thebes that was situate among the rivers that had the waters round about it, whose rampart was the seam, and her wall was from the seam. Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength, and it was infinite. Put and Lubin were thy helpers, yet was she carried away. She went into captivity. Her young children also were dashed in pieces at the top of all the streets, and they cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound in chains." Are you better? God is saying through Nahum to Nineveh, are you better than Thebes? And those Assyrians would have known all about Thebes. Because they were the ones who had destroyed it. They were the ones who had attacked it. That city Thebes, they thought, was immune from attack. Huge wall, great riches, renowned for its power, just like Nineveh. God is saying it's happened once, and it happened at your hands. Do you think your own city is going to be invincible? You'd have thought they'd have realized when they pulled down a city like Thebes, their own city would also be vulnerable. But no, they believed it can never happen to us. Oh, it can happen to them, and we did it, and those other guys, we have taken them out as well, but it's not going to happen to us. They're arrogant. They were superior. They were invincible. They didn't need to live by God's rules. Are many people on earth today feel exactly like that? Think like this. Oh, yes, my friend has been taken, but it's not going to happen to me. I'm all right. Nothing will happen. Nineveh was wrong. They would be destroyed in the same way that they had destroyed others. And that's what God is saying here. So we have thought about the character of God, the certainty of judgment then finally, the conclusions for us, the conclusions for us. There is a danger we could read the book of Nahum? I would imagine we don't often read it, and may conclude it has little, if anything, to do with us. It's a piece of history. It tells us what happened to Nineveh, but it has no current application. Everything in the Bible is there for our instruction. Let's highlight in passing three lessons that we learn from Nahum. The first lesson is punishment. A truth to keep in mind here is sin will be dealt with. So, we have a healthy respect for God's nature and God's character. That's a good thing, a good starting point. Someone who does not respect the power of the ocean or the sea can easily drown. The water's beautiful and fun. You might go out there, snorkel, scuba dive. You might even do a little surfing. But you must always be aware of the power of the ocean and of the sea. Aware of the ocean's dangers through the world. Deadly fish, powerful over two of the waves. And if you take the ocean for granted, you could well be destroyed by its power. The same is true of God. He is our loving God. He is our provider. He is our sustainer. He is our friend. But we must never forget. He is also holy and powerful. And if we forget that, we'll tend to presume upon his grace. But God doesn't compromise with his standards, he doesn't change with the winds of public opinion. Right is right, wrong is wrong, always will be. If we continue to rebel against him, then like Nineveh, we face his judgment. And on a national level, we must understand God acts against nations. I'm always glad in our United Kingdom, and here in Northern Ireland in particular, to see Christian men and women in positions of influence. But of course, we lament how in our own country, for example. Due to the structure of our government, not that it's functioning at the moment, the personnel involved who have been elected, those Christian men and women are pretty much unable to do anything major without the approval of the majority in both communities. And iniquitous laws that have been enacted in our nation to change those, humanly speaking. Humanly speaking, the chance is virtually nil. But a righteous influence we need, and salt we require. But I can't help but wonder how long God will remain silent towards a country that defends the right of people to murder the unborn and to discriminate against the reborn. Can't have conversion therapy, can you not? You can't pray even silently within the vicinity of a, an abortion mill. How long will God put up with the wanton immorality that is broadcast into our homes? How long will God continue to be patient as sorcery and mysticism replaces genuine worship? We can't ever put a time scale on God's patience, but we know. He will not remain silent forever. Punishment. Not only that, pardon. We have a reminder in the book that God's mercy must be embraced by each generation by each generation. The book of Jonah underlines the fact that judgment on Nineveh was averted because of their repentance, and so God showed mercy. But now we've got to Nahum's day, and we're 100 to 150 years down the line, and Nahum reminds us here, you know, that faith and repentance Nineveh showed in the past, it doesn't guarantee faith and repentance in the present. We live in Northern Ireland of a rich heritage, a very rich spiritual heritage, but we can't piggyback on the faith of our forefathers when we don't see the faith of our forefathers in evidence or in much evidence around us today. And we need to listen to this sober warning. People may grow up in a Christian home. Your grandparents may be converted. Your parents may know the Lord. You might be raised up in an evangelical church. But that means nothing. If you don't have a personal, seething relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not enough to know the words. It's not enough to consent to the facts about Jesus Christ. You and I must believe the Word and build our lives on that Word. Mercy must be embraced by each generation. And then finally, protection. And we come to an encouraging word here. The book is encouraging, despite all the darkness and all the dismal announcement of judgment, the book is encouraging. And here are words written to tell us God does not forget His people. The Israelites have gone through tough times. They may have felt abandoned, but they weren't. And throughout the book of Nahum, God is declaring, I am a refuge for those who trust in Me. Who can forget the glorious words of Nahum 1 and 7, the Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. Also, Chapter 1 and 12 and 13 and 15 and chapter 2 and the verse 2, God cares passionately for his people, defends those who hide themselves in him. And maybe today you feel stressed out by life. Overrun by a whole, it appears like an army of different circumstances, and maybe you feel in the middle of all of this, I'm abandoned by the Lord. The book of Nahum reminds you, the Lord Almighty is your shield. You were not forgotten. He knows those who trust in Him. Maybe you've made bad choices. We all have. Maybe you've drifted away from the Lord Maybe you feel, you know, right now God would be justified in just taking Himself off from me. Nahum reminds us, we still have time to turn to Him and discover His forgiveness and grace. We can't set a limit on the time, but there is time right now. How long will God endure with our world? How long will God allow our country to drift from Him? How long before the Lord stands and cries, Enough! I don't know. But I do have a feeling the answer to that question depends on whether or not people like you and I pay attention to the message of an old prophet named Nahum. When a nation forgets God, it's time to stir our nation to remember Him again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we call upon Thy name today. We know it's a solemn book, the book of Nahum. We know it's a dark book in so many ways, but we appreciate the light, the shafts of light that appear that point us to Thyself and to a message of comfort and good. May we all enter into that. Flee from the wrath to come. Find security in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.